welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 178. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's the final week of H.P. Lovecraft Month here on the Drabblecast, a month of original commissioned work by your favorite authors, inspired to some degree by the Lovecraft mythos. But before we get rolling, we're going to start things off as usual with a 100-word story. Exactly 100 words, no more, no less. It's called a drabble, duh. And it's a worthy challenge and a lot of fun. Give it a shot and post it in our discussion forums or send it in to drabblecast at yahoo.com. Maybe yours will make it onto the show. This week's Drabble is called Packets, and it comes to us from the charismatic and multi-voiced Rish Outfield, co-host of the fun and worth-your-time story podcast, The Doonstief. You can try them out on your ears at doonstief.com. Is this some kind of joke? Kyle asked, looking down at his mild sauce. Taco Bell's hot sauce packets often had clever sayings on them, but this wasn't one of them. Your son is gay? He read. That's not funny, guys. Teddy isn't even five yet. But none of us laughed. Since it wasn't a prank, we were confused. We studied our own sauces. Rhett gasped, then hid his medium packet from the rest of us. This one's blank, Dennis marveled, passing it to me. In my hands, however, it was not blank. Your wife's having an affair. It said. It's called the MacGuffin. And no, it's not something you can buy from a disheveled teenager at a drive-thru window or a disheveled teenager at an Apple store. And no, it's not a guy who can untie himself and disassemble a time bomb with nothing but, say, a delicious cheeseburger or an overhyped laptop. And no, it's not a flying Latino man with angel wings and a silver boomerang. Come on. The MacGuffin is, well, Angus MacPhail, who may have been the first to coin the term, explained its meaning with a nonsense story. Two men were traveling on a train from London to Scotland. An odd-shaped package sat on the luggage rack above their seat. What you got there? asked one of the men. Oh, that's a MacGuffin, replied his companion. What's a MacGuffin? Well, it's a device for trapping lions in the Scottish Highlands. But there aren't any lions in the Scottish Highlands. Well then, I guess that's no MacGuffin. <laughs> Jolly good, right then. Cheers. Hitchcock said a MacGuffin was a device or gimmick of sorts. The papers that the spies are after, for example, that seem to be of vital importance to the characters, but to you, they're of no importance whatsoever. The MacGuffin, you see, is the engine that sets the story in motion. It can be anything, or nothing at all, and you can find them in mythos writing, mystery writing, and Taco Bell, apparently. Mythos and mystery fiction have a lot in common that way, but there's one big difference. The mystery elements in a mystery tale are like breadcrumbs on a trail leading to a discovery that reaffirms the order of the universe. This golden galleon may be a rare coin, but what would a gorilla want with it? It's not a gorilla, sir. It's... (gasps) It's Mr. Dilly! Whereas in the Lovecraft mythos, it's the exact opposite, revealing that there is no real order to anything in existence. All bets are off, and we all lose. Uh, 
and I would have succeeded if it hadn't been for these meddling kids. It all starts with that MacGuffin. The legendary Golden Galleon. The mysterious black tower in the distance, begging to be ascended. The creepy, broken bits of glass and metal in your backyard. The quick, transparent squirm of something in the corner of your eye that you just can't get out of your head. And then it's all downhill from there, baby. A slippery slope that in mythos writing never comes back up. Hurry, Scoob. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're too late, fellas. They're all gone. They're all gone. leads us into this week's story, The Tentacled Sky by Jay Lake. Jay lives in Portland, Oregon, where he works on numerous writing and editing projects. His 2009 novels are Green from Tor Books, Madness of Flowers from Nightshade Books, and Death of a Starship from Monkey Brain Books. His short fiction appears regularly in literary and genre markets worldwide. Jay is a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. As with the last few stories this month, after this week's story, you'll hear Jay himself talk a little about The Tentacled Sky and what exactly inspired it. So, without further ado, we bring you The Tentacled Sky by Jay Lake. The first note was scribbled on a piece of old cardstock, fountain pen ink splattered carelessly across the fuzzed textures, as if it had been written in haste by someone's elegant grandmother. The handwriting itself was hardly Palmer method, instead being as sloppy as the inkwork, again signaling haste. I turned the slightly irregular missive in my well-protected hands, looking at the back, where a scrap of printing could just be made out to read, E-A-L-O-U, in faded vermilion ink that reminded me of old blood. Significantly, neither my name nor my address was on the reverse, only the faded printing and some wear scars. The note itself simply read, Tuesday, 7.13 p.m. Unsigned, undated, unadorned, stuck into my door just above the latch, where I'd be sure to find the note immediately upon my return for my errands about the city. Note to gentle readers, I should not like to reveal more about my erstwhile whereabouts for fear of endangering you. Please forgive my lack of specificity concerning such an otherwise elementary matter. Later on, the rain descended. The matter of climate had been much bruited in the newspapers of late, for so far in the course of this year, barely halfway past, we had challenged most prior records for annual precipitation. The weather-wise were declaiming that by the end of August, this year of rain in the city should be one for the record books. The weather-foolish were proclaiming a need for honest citizens to provision themselves with boats for their porches and flotation devices that the children might yet swim to school when the curriculum resumed in September. This year's rain had been in general possessed of a distinctly unaqueous elasticity. 
Instead of washing the streets and clearing the air, the water clung with a nigh, gelid tenacity to buildings, gutters, trees, and even the unfortunate birds. I was put much in mind of studies recently published in several lower-tier journals of academics and sciences regarding the polymerization of water. Ordinarily, such drastic pronunciations about novel states of matter are thinly disguised pleas for funding or continued sponsorship, and as such, I pay them little mind. Our reign of this year in the city was revising my opinions on this particular matter. I sat to watch the street through the cracked glazing of my front window. Naturally, it was surgically clean on the inside, smelling faintly of surfactants and rubbing alcohol. However, on the outside, the glass was somewhat obscured by the persistent sheet of water clinging like a drowning man to the last rope of his hopes. Though I had largely ignored the note of the previous weekend, it continued to perch on my mantle, ungainly harbinger of vague portent. My grandfather's railroad clock had struck the seventh hour of the afternoon not so long ago. Now I peered into the street, looking through the rain that fell like clear aspic, to see what might be in store at the hour appointed by my anonymous correspondent. A single figure shuffled along the thoroughfare, eschewing the sidewalks in favor of the cobbled expanses where the day's traffic had so recently wound down to the usual evening trickle. I had to laugh, for the approaching entity was as something designed by children in pretense of threat. Long leather car coat that flapped in the wind, the figure beneath shrouded in shadow and rainfall. A wide-brimmed hat pulled low over the face until nothing could be seen from my second-floor vantage except crown-surmounting shoulders and a shambling gait of which any bedtime story boogeyman would be proud. Could this jack of the streets be my mysterious correspondent? Or an agent of theirs, perhaps? No one else appeared, no autobus or taxicab, no private automobiles rushing for medical aid or cruising for the evening air, just this creature who dropped below my line of sight. I heard my apartment building's front door creak open, that bad hinge ever worsening in the endless rain. I heard a heavy tread upon the stairs. I heard the floorboard outside my door squeak, as it always did when I had a visitor. I tensed, waiting for the knock that would doubtless be a thunderous echo. My heart raced despite my airs of amusement, and my breath was harsh in my throat. I counted to one hundred, but no knock came. Neither did the floorboard squeak again. Taking my courage in hand, I crept to the door and pressed my ear against the varnished wood, my nose reporting old oak, turpentine, and mold. I expected stentorian breathing or some harsh life noise of rough trade waiting to spring upon me. Silence. Noting that the clock now reported 7.15 of the evening, I rallied my intestinal fortitude and cracked open the portal, keeping the stout brass chain in place. I cannot say who or what I expected to find without, but no one stood in the hall. 
Only the broad-brimmed hat lay there, upside down as if carelessly discarded before my door. Another piece of cardstock had been dropped into the inverted crown. I listened a moment, for surely the visitor had not departed. I heard no footsteps, the floorboard had not squeaked, neither stairs nor front door had echoed in their invariable manners. Still, I heard no breathing, nor the rustling silence that usually shouts of a person holding themselves still and secret. Either my visitor was a practitioner of one of those Asiatic arts of noiseless assault and stealthy concealment, or they had contrived to noiselessly vanish from the upstairs hall of my building. Into the apartment of one of my three immediate neighbors, I'd heard no knock, no click of latch, no usual murmur of polite social intercourse. Once more summoning my courage, for by now I was deeply and obscurely disturbed, I pushed my door to, unsecured the chain, then opened it to step out into the fearful precincts that were my own front hallway, transformed. Only a hat threatened me. Damp, silent, inner band still warm from someone's head, with a further bit of cardstock left carelessly therein. An afterthought missive from an uncaring universe. I pulled on a latex glove from the supply I keep always in my pockets and carefully lifted the card. Unadorned, unaddressed, this time smelling of pocket lint and damp wool, one side proclaimed the letters U-T-T-O-N. The other simply read, Friday, 10.17 a.m., in the same hasty hand and splattered fountain pen. With a sigh, I took my prizes and retreated to the dubious safety of my apartment. I washed my hands a good long while with three different soaps while contemplating my next move. Clearly some game was afoot, though I understood nothing of it yet. Just as clearly this was not a matter for the authorities. What complaint should I bring to the police? That someone had gifted me with a hat and a pair of odd notes? Unfair as it might be, I was already aware of my reputation in certain sections of the city. The compromise of my dignity through the mandatory psychiatric confinement of two years ago was unjust as any reasonable person could see, but neither the courts nor the medical authorities were overly concerned with reason, preferring instead their petty little rules and straitened expectations. Oh no. I could expect no help from those quarters. I was, as usual in this life, set upon my own devices once more. Properly cleansed, I examined the hat with stainless steel tongs and a lacquered chopstick. Under my patient and persistent prodding, the headgear revealed no particular secrets. It was a fine-grained leather lined with dark maroon silk. There was no maker's label or stamp on the inner band, though the threading indicated high-quality work, most likely a bespoke effort. My children's monster in the street had been a fashionable fellow, for all his or her air of menace. 
After much thought and no little stealing of my resolve, I tugged on a latex skullcap. My hair, auburn ringlets of which I allowed myself small vanity, fit well enough beneath. This was little different from those times when I dressed myself to be someone else in the world. After spraying the inside of the hat with disinfectants, I gingerly placed it upon my head. Gloves and skullcap, I reminded myself. It would not touch the flesh of my body. I stood and regarded myself in the mirror above the mantle. Adjusting the brim, I thought I could pass for the stranger in a view from above, should that ever be necessary. Passing was a skill of mine, carefully cultivated against necessities both dire and trivial, binding or padding my chest, lifts in my shoes, a change to the curve of my spine or shoulders, the proper wig. I could be anyone. Except yourself, a voice whispered. After a moment's startle, I recognized it for my own. On Friday morning, the city was gloomy, but no longer half-drowned. Not for the moment, at any rate. I sat by my window, the broad leather hat totemically perched upon my head. My street was busier than the previous visitation, crowded with the usual mid-morning traffic of rag pickers and letter carriers, delivery men and harried mothers with preschool children. I watched for the shambling visitor, and was not disappointed. Soon the mysterious figure appeared from behind a dark brown package truck, disgorging some mercantilist sending into the home at 1406, near the beginning of my block. They shambled once more, this time bare-headed as any clown, curled hair moving in the slight breeze outside. The car coat flapped, and their pace seemed more vigorous today. Of course, if my visitor cultivated anonymity, a slow, menacing gait would not be their best choice at such a busy hour. Once again, they disappeared from view just below me. Once again, the front door swung open, the squeal of distressed hinges, the steps echoed, the floorboard outside my door squeaked. Once again, there was no knock, only a psychic miasma of menace. Once again, I stood, listening, waiting with the patience of snakes, until the old railroad clock struck half past the hour. I threw the door open in an outburst of showmanship to find a pair of tall leather boots in the hall. Another cardstock note propped between them. Through the entire afternoon, I scanned the sky for serpents. Sometimes I glimpsed the bladed and bloody future another aspect of my life for which neither the civil authorities nor the medical establishment had any patience. The world to come leaves its tracks around us in the frost on hearses, railroad car graffiti, visible but secret patterns in park plantings and concert posters plastered to brick walls. One needs only attune oneself to read this. I mostly keep my distance from these truths. 
They disrupt the flow of my life and introduce fears that can overwhelm. But the emergent structure of mysterious notes and visitations reminded me all too much of my prior visions. So I watched and waited, trying to catch sight of what might yet come. Nothing emerged from the watercolor clouds but rain and more rain. <laughs> no writhing tentacles, no bleary eye of God staring down in indifferent judgment. Haruspication is a lost art at the best of times, and my own small precognition has rarely served to provide more than trouble. I was not sure this was trouble, yet something still moved. R-E-E-D was scheduled for Sunday, 4.44 p.m. I spent the day scrubbing down the apartment. I was out of lye, but was able to compensate with some additional hydrochloric acid at 32% concentration. I wanted to be ready, and the cleansing always aided my thinking. The idea of installing small cameras in the hall seemed logical enough, but was beyond my means both fiscally and technically. I was reluctant to wait outside and watch. My usual horror of the filth of the world was very much at issue, but also an inner sense on my part that if I broke the pattern, so would my visitor. So I scrubbed and thought, thought and scrubbed, and focused on what would come next. Perhaps I should throw open the door as soon as I heard footfalls on the stairs, or wait for the creaking of the floorboard. Except, this had already assumed the aspects of ritual. Breaking a ritual was a fearful thing. I could not even bring myself to vary the order in which I filled my small basket at the grocery store every Sunday afternoon. How could I violate this implied trust? In the end, I waited in the window, boots upon my cling-wrap-coated feet, hat upon my latex-capped head. Just about 4.40, my visitor appeared, walking more slowly due to the crowding of the street. Visibly female now, her car coat flapped behind her, her bare head flashing with auburn curls. From my vantage point, she appeared to be barefooted. I waited until she passed out of sight into my building, then leapt to my door, a scrubbed and polished fireplace poker in my hand. The usual noises proceeded in the usual order, until I heard my neighbor's door creak open. Miss Willits in 2B, across the hall. She must be even now encountering my mysterious visitor at the head of the stairs. I heard the murmur of voices, but could not make out what was said, even as I strained to hear. The tones seemed to be those of guarded familiarity, not challenge. I realized then with sick horror that everyone in my building was in on the conspiracy. My visitor left her gifts before my door, then slipped silently into Miss Willett's apartment to outweigh me. No one was to be trusted. I'd learned that lesson practically in my cradle, but I'd let uncouth familiarity dull my wariness of those 
on whom most suspicion should naturally fall. The people around me, every day. They were the most in a position to deduce the patterns of my life, find my secret vulnerabilities, cooperate in a clandestine manner with the police and the doctors. Angry now, I hurled open my door, poker at the ready. Nothing was before me but a folded leather car coat and a piece of cardstock. Frustrated, I stalked up and down the hall twice, but there was nowhere to hide and no one hiding there. Miss Willits was gone. The visitor was gone. I used the tip of the poker to pick up the car coat. It took several tries, then kicked the cardstock through the open door. I retreated, shutting, chaining, and double-locking myself into the safety of my apartment. I did not want to have to move. When I dumped the car coat onto the floor, I saw that the tip of the poker was mucky with some foulness. On close inspection, it was a mix of blood and hair. I whirled around, weapon at the ready, to see a naked woman slumped in my flowered wingback chair. Her neck was bent at an odd angle, while blood caked the right side of her face. Oddly, she wore a latex skullcap, just like mine and latex gloves, no different from my own. Her features were as familiar as my mirror. No, I thought, not again. I hurled the incriminating poker away from me. It clattered against the steam heater, then wound up beneath, leaving a deep maroon smear on my hardwood floor. Heedless, I picked up the cardstock, and looked at it. Erder, it read. Too late now. I understood that message well enough. It could be translated as, We are coming. Beware. Stepping to the window, I checked the sky for signs. Serpents flew from the house of the sun. The first of many sirens wailed in the distance. Bareheaded and barehanded, I shrugged myself into my car coat, donned my leather hat, pocketed my stack of cut-up cardboard and my father's fountain pen, and stepped out into the glittering barbs of the gimlet-eyed future. The filth of my life I left behind me. I was somewhat ironically pleased when Drabblecast commissioned this story from me. Not too long ago, I'd reread some of H.P. Lovecraft's work in preparation for a different project. This meant I had the great man's eccentric voice and toxic vision still fairly well stuffed into my head. At the same time, I've always been fascinated by city fiction, in the sense of Mieville and Vandermeer, or Dark City and Blade Runner. So I wanted to do something that had a closed-in, interwar feeling bordering on the stylish with that special Lovecraft sensitivity. Finally, I have a love of identity paranoia fiction, at which Lovecraft was an early master. All those threads came together in this brief piece with its highly unreliable and self-aggrandizing narrator. Haven't we all had this person for a neighbor at some point in our lives? Maybe that's the most frightening thing about Lovecraft, the almost petty ordinariness in which ancient evil can express itself. 
Thanks, Jay. I definitely have that guy for a neighbor. Or that girl. Whatever. Speaking of the old switcheroo there, want to give a special thanks to Michelle Mullington of the Pendragon Variety Podcast for stepping in and lending her voice for this one. Michelle pursues various podcast and fiction-related endeavors in between taking care of her monster toddler and, well, taking care of her monster toddler. That's okay, though, because raising geek-love progeny helps ensure that cool people will be listening to things like the Drabblecast forever. Say hello to Michelle as Miss Micah on the Drabblecast forums, or on Twitter at Miss Micah. Oh, also special thanks to Drabblecast fan Jonathan McNeil for helping Michelle out with her recording situation. Nothing like having a good, friendly neighbor, hey? Alrighty, folks, I'm running really short on time this week, so we're going to get right into this week's 100-character story winner, Scream in Space, with this little fella. Overpopulation by the virus in Tom gave his body a fever, and the virus perished from the consequences of climate change. Think about it. Think you can write a kick-ass story with only 100 characters? Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter at The Drabblecast. All right, folks, like I said, Uncle Norm's gotta go attend to some business. Some gorilla stole my golden galleon. This is where I'm supposed to ask you for money, but you know what? I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say, I don't think I need to do that this week. You're a nice guy, or girl, or, you know, both, or whatever. You know you should help us out if you like the show by throwing us a donation, either one time or automatic monthly subscription via our website, travelcast.org, because you've got a conscious up there somewhere amongst all those creepy lizard voices in your skull, and we really appreciate it. So that's all, folks. Hope you enjoyed Lovecraft Month. We'll be back with your regular, scheduled, completely unpredictable Drabblecast next week. Thanks a ton to this week's badass episode artist with some really gorgeous tentacle work, Elon Trinidad. I talk about this guy's webcomic site, theoryofeverything.com, every time he does art for us. It's really awesome. Here's the premise. The intellectual property of God is bought up by a certain animation, media, entertainment, and theme park corporation. Hmm... Now the apocalypse is looming, and it's up to Reverend Job Kim, CPA, to stop it. Go check it out at theoryofeverything.com. All right, weirdos, we'll see you next week. Remember, our show is produced under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. Don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our staff is made up of co-editors, Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that, well, I guess it's not a MacGuffin then. (laughs) 